everyone that understands history and theory and psychology knows this is the case. So this is not a, this is not a mystery. It's not poorly documented. It's unbelievably well documented. There's an entire history here. And we, the field, then shifts over to methods and then pretends that methods equal science. Okay? That's not right. All right? Methods are used as a tool to understand reality. The periodic table of the elements in chemistry and in physics, that's like our knowledge. And we use the methods of science to get knowledge about atoms and molecules. We don't know what we mean by mind, and that's, am and that's amazing. So, yeah, they get the methods, they institutionalize the methods, and we lose track of the ontology, the subject matter. They provide the meta-theoretical structure that gives us coherence, both in terms of relationship to vision logic, but then all the key insights that science has given us, evolutionary, neuroscience, the cognitive approaches, the behavioral approaches, and everything else that has afforded us. And the nice thing about these things is they grab all those insights and weave them together in a tapestry, so we now have a meta-theoretical causal framework for understanding this stuff. That's right. It's not magic at all. It's actually unbelievably conservative. You talk, people will look at it, it's like, oh, that guy's a quack. You know, he's claiming all this shit. I'm like, no, I'm claiming just foundational endo-naturalism. I'm like, the fundamental assumptions of natural philosophy that virtually everybody made from Newton to Kant when they started on this, this just clarifies it. That's all. And it does it very conservatively, actually. It just takes all the key insights and just ties them together. And it says, one of the epistemological criteria we should be having, and we sort of do, but we lost it because we decided we couldn't have it, is coherence. It's like, hey, is there comprehensive intelligibility here? And everyone, I mean, the psycho my discipline itself worked on that for a while and then said, but you're never going to have it. So then they, <laughs> so they denied it and then rationalized why they would never have it. And then we stopped looking for it. And, and to me, that's sort of like, I mean, almost might as well not do science. If you can't, if you can't also achieve coherent intelligibility, then, then the, the whole project is really debatable in terms of its utility. It's no secret that psychology has a unification problem. There are all these different parts, the theoretical ones to the therapeutic ones, that function really well on their own, but don't fit together into a coherent whole. Greg Enriquez has one of the most ambitious and impressive solutions to this problem. He's come up with a unified theory of knowledge, one that strings together all the different parts of psychology into a coherent, ontological picture. And his framework has a whole lot of consequence, not just for the field of psychology or the study of the mind, but also for scientific ontology in general. Greg Enriquez is a professor of psychology at James Madison University. He's the author of the 2011 book, A New Unified Theory of Psychology, as well as an upcoming one on the problem psychology. Uh, he also runs a YouTube channel, uh, You Talking with Greg, that is a great resource for understanding parts of his theory, as well as interesting conversations with other thinkers. Uh, here, we try to do a deep dive into the key points and some of the finer details of his framework. Here is my conversation with Greg Henriquez. Okay, so to start off, I think I would just want to talk about the problem of psychology. Uh, what is this problem of the this fragmented nature of psychology, and how did you come across it? To me, this is a, I'm really glad you're starting here. Uh, I wish that people understood this problem more. I think it's at the center of many different things. Um, so the way I like to frame it is to say, hey, when... Uh, physics got started. It was actually, there was a lot of confusion uh, about exactly how to define matter and motion. Although physicists were pretty clear that what they were interested was that topic. Uh, and then you get Newton comes along and he transforms a pre-paradigmatic set of insights into a full paradigm. Okay. 
uh, and we get the real art, uh, articulation and architecture of modern empirical science with Newton. And what you have is a very clear uh, analysis, mathematical, experimental, theoretical, of uh, sort of classic matter in motion. Okay, And so we have a science of physics that's very clear about what its subject matter is. Um, chemistry emerges in relationship to that, biology in terms of the science of life, and a lot of other natural sciences then grow around this structure. Okay. Um, in the middle of the 19th century, uh, it's the success of modern empirical natural science naturally then draws people to start to think seriously about the mind, consciousness, human intelligence capacities, et cetera. Um, and what you get is you get an emergence of we're going to apply the methods of science uh, to psychology. Okay. Um, but something very interesting happens shortly after this, within the first 50 years. And that is there is no way that individuals can agree on the domain of the mental okay, in a way that they can agree on the domain of the living or the domain of the material. So we get the physical and chemical sciences being pretty clear about the word I'll use is their ontology. That is the thing in the world that they're about, okay? Biologists come along and they can place their interest in the world scientifically in a pretty clear ontology. No one really debates that biology is the science of life. And although there's differences in opinion about what exactly constitutes life and the ingredients that go into it, everyone knows that us bacterial cells alive. They know that viruses are interesting in that regard, and they know that a molecule is not alive. And then there's the world of the living, and the science of biology is the world of the living, okay? And you bring the methods of science to understand ontologically what life is and how it works, okay? Then you get to psychology. It has no subject matter. What do you mean by that? Isn't, didn't you just say it was about mind? And it's like, yeah. But we don't define mind in any way like we define life and matter because we don't know what our referent is and everybody's got different kinds of reference and no one can agree on how to put all the reference together to give you a coherent whole. Okay. So what happened to the field of psychology is that it started to grow in different schools of thought, actually very similar to the way Newton's uh, pre-Newton physics was. Okay, But then what happened is that they never put the system together and instead was like, well, you'll never will put the system together. What we're a science of is we're a science because we apply the methods of science to whatever the mental is. Okay, So by the middle of the 20th century, 20, uh, yeah, you know, 19 in America, we get this emergence of psycho the science of psychology is the science of behavior and mental process where behavior was what's available to us via the scientific method and mental processes are what maps the, the researcher maps as what they think is the cause or a mediating input output relation. This is now in mainstream psychology, radical behaviors and different. So the bottom line is there is no agreement about what we mean by mind or mental process. That's a miracle. That's like, oh my, what do you, really? Like, we don't know what we mean. And the answer is, yeah, that we don't know what we mean. And that, that's amazing. 
one one of the quotes from the I think the second chapter of your book that really stuck out to me was I forget which psychologist it was that said it, but it it was essentially that psychology had its institutionalization before it had its content and its methods before it had its problems. That's right. Sigmund Kosh. Sigmund Kosh, thank you. Uh, and that just seems to be a novel and, and kind of remarkable historical development. Like, how does that work? Right. But well, the interesting thing is, for, for you want everyone that understands history and theory and psychology knows this is the case. So this is not a this is not a mystery. It's not poorly documented. It's unbelievably well documented. There's an entire history here, and we the field then shifts over to methods and then pretends that methods equal science. Okay. That's not right, all right? Methods are used as a tool to understand reality. The periodic table of the elements in chemistry and in physics, that's like our knowledge. And we use the methods of science to get knowledge about atoms and molecules. We don't know what we mean by mind, and that's, and that's amazing. So yeah, they get the methods, they institutionalize the methods, and we lose track of the ontology, the subject matter. And that's, that's in, um, in my current book that I just finished, uh, I got to just get through the reference and submit. It's called The Problem of Psychology uh, and a New Vision for Its Solution. I take the analysis I did in my first book and deepen it at a philosophical level uh, even further and articulate the proper philosophical solution, meaning the metaphysical and ontological solutions that then set the stage for a metatheoretical solution, which I outlined in that first book uh, quite explicitly. Right. So is part of this because psychology is unique in that it has these competing interests? Uh, I think you talk about values in, in one of the chapters, the, these competing interests between a therapeutic application and the theoretical side of it. Like even going back to Volgotsky, there's this sort of separation between a rational explication and, and phenomenal experience. Totally. So psychology becomes this uh, hub of different facets that can't get defined, so lots of things get attached to it. So um, there, there are a number of different problems that never get resolved, and then everything gets amalgamated just into an incoherent institutional arrangement. Okay, so let me let's break them some of those down. So one is inside of science. Okay, we have the problems inside of science. So, so I said science comes along and defines its subject matter. But it does through sort of particular epistemological frame, meaning science learns how to know about the world a particular way. Okay, I argue that actually what science does is it builds the concept of behavior philosophically. Okay, and what that means is behavior means you pull out an entity relative to a field, then you measure that change. Okay, and then you develop data and logical analysis and experimentation on behavior which means that you situate your scientific observer in a place where it's he or she's gathering measurement about change and developing models, correspondent models to change, okay? Now, why is that really important? Well, it's really important because many people believe that the subject matter of psychology is something what I would call the psyche, okay? Well, but the psyche is different than behavior because psyche sits inside of the system and is in what's called inside-out epistemic vector, in, meaning your psyche. I can't see your psyche directly. You have access to the world through your psyche, but I don't observe your psyche. I only observe your behavior. Okay? So the nature of the scientific enterprise is behavioral. The language of it is behavioral. 
But the interest of us <laughs> in psychology is at least in part the subjective experience of being in the world that you can't see behavioral. Okay? So inside of science, you got this real conundrum. You're like, well, we're gonna we're gonna make this thing a science, and one of our P is interests can't be scientifically observed based on the language of science and how it justifies relative to what the subject matter is. So inside the field, this is just one of the major problems why, you know, I mean, we start with Wilhelm Wundt saying, hey, I'll do this by training introspectionists to get access to phenomenological consciousness, and then they blow up that method. There's good historical debate about whether that's a good thing to do or not, but that's the issue. You can't get at it directly, okay? So early on, this is the scientific issue. And when psychology, the modern science of psychology is getting underway, it's inside the science problem. So it's not spread to the point that you're making. However, pretty early on, people are like, well, we got psychiatry over here in medicine, right? There was all this mental illness problems. So that by 1906, clinical psychology is starting to get established, okay? And it's a small discipline at first, but in the United States, after World War II, the wealth of the United States government was in a position, after all the boys came home, okay, they poured a huge amount of money into psychology to help with adjustment, okay? So then you had, and the psychologists have been developing technologies like to assess people and develop measurement constructs about intelligence and psychopathology, and had started the process, and psychoanalysis and behaviorism were both doing this, started the process to say we can start applying this knowledge to make the world a better place, help with human well-being. Well, then the United States government invested a huge amount of money and said, hey, psychologists, help with adjustment, Okay. So all of a sudden, what happened then is clinical psychology was born in 1947. There's a Boulder model. Notice that's right after uh, World War II, okay? And then the field starts to give this identity of, hey, we're psychological doctors. And actually, society in the 1970s, uh, certainly uh, United States society, took, took off at the level of, hey, we need mental health. And so then if more and more people piled into mental health, the science of psychology was already fluffy at the level of its subject matter. And then you had the influx of applied people. And this just then added layers of complexity so much so that now when most people think of a psychologist, they don't think about a scientist doing lab-based research. They think about somebody you go talk to about your mother, <laughs> you know, you know, uh, you know, so, and then, so what is the identity of a psychologist? Then they licensed a psychologist. There was actually in the United States, there's ways in which, you know, if you're just a pro, just a professor of psychology, you can't really call yourself a psychologist because then you licensed it because that became a profession, health service profession under license regulation. So there's all of this identity confusion. Um, I want to make clear that the, um, the identity of a professional psychologist is fundamentally different than the identity of a scientist in the goals that they want to that they're operating to achieve. A scientist wants to describe and explain. A professional psychologist wants to affect change toward well-being. And all those things can be paired up in some ways. They fundamentally are different. Um, so the unified theory ultimately says, actually, psychology needs to be divided into three great branches. Um, the profession, and then there are two domains of mental process that must be separated. The animal mental domain of process, which I can talk about, 
um, and then the culture person domain. Uh, those are two very different domains of mental processing because we cluster everything together in mental process, don't have ways of differentiating it. Um, we get enormous amounts of confusion. Okay. So, okay. Before we pull in the TOK system, uh, let, let's talk about the enlightenment gap. Uh, so we trace this back to uh, Western intellectual history and a problem that occurs, well, in Descartes specifically, but but has its has its traces to classical philosophy, as does everything. Uh, so what's, what is the Enlightenment gap? Right. So the Enlightenment gap, so basically when science emerges, it grabs a hold of a clear new knowledge system, essentially physics, chemistry into physics, and it gives rise to a physically reductive view of the world, okay, in the sense that we can now stratify the layers of nature, at least starting with biology into chemistry into physics, okay, and show the laws of physics manage the matter in motion behavioral process, okay? But what we couldn't do then is then place the emergence of a human knower, okay, in relationship to that, understand what human consciousness is, understand what consciousness is, understand what intelligence is, understand the relationship between a knower and the known in a holistic way, okay? So, uh, especially in the uh, sort of British to American tradition. You can argue that somebody like Hegel, who did develop a pretty interesting synthesis, um, was pretty successful at potentially gretting a synthetic philosophy. Of course, it lasts for 50 years or so inside of the German academy. It then breaks down. I don't think that anywhere you see a real synthetic philosophy holding, but that becomes a different German idealist tradition. What happens to the British is an empiricist tradition that I like to say gets stuck between the epistemology of Kant and the ontology of Newton. And what I mean by that is we get a physical, the world is clearly matter in motion. You lose the justification, philosophical justification for what's called dual worldism, or, or you know, a dual worldview, which is Rene Descartes, this idea that there's matter and there's mind and mind is a different substance, okay? Almost everybody blows that up and says actually philosophically, metaphysically, the concepts and categories of these two fundamentally different things can't work together. You really can only make sense out of the world as a one-worldism, especially as the emergence of science. So this is all the backdrop. What's the enlightenment gap? Well, the failure of do this means that we have a massive mind-matter, mind-body problem. Like, what is the proper relationship between what is mind? How does it fit in the material universe? Um, what is it in terms of both consciousness? And then how do we know? Okay. Um, so that's one gigantic part of the Enlightenment gap, a gap in our knowledge that places mind pro in proper relationship to matter. A second aspect of it is, well, what actually is scientific knowledge and how do we build a system of scientific knowledge in, that's held in proper relationship to subjective and social knowledge? The, the, the dimension here is you can really see the tensions between modernism, which is like, oh, science gives us a transcendent way of understanding reality. Postmodernism say no, science really is a justification system, that's my term, but that's essentially what they say it as, that situates in socio-historical context and ultimately legitimizes white male logic, okay, in many regards, to create a power colonial structure that legitimizes the structures of, of the, uh, you know, liber liberty and democracy and everything else of modernity and actually is a disaster for many others and isn't shouldn't be granted any kind of special authority relative to regular cultural knowledge. It's not a coherent worldview. It can't be said to give a grand narrative. 
It needs to be contextualized. And so the postmodern critique says, no, you have to contextualize science. You can't justify it as some transcendent knowing systems. And so you get this problem. The enlightenment gap is then the confusion, the chaotic, fragmented pluralism that emerges out of our failure to develop a philosophy that coherently synthesizes mind and matter and the proper relationship of science relative to social and subjective knowledge. And, and, and if we then agree that, yeah, philosophy, we never got a philosophical picture of placing science in relationship to social and subjective knowledge, and we don't know matter to mind, well, with that backdrop, you then enter into this whole, well, how are we going to develop a science of mind? <laughs> okay? And now all of a sudden you're at the foot of the problem of psychology. Well, of course, if we lack a conceptual structure to answer these two questions, inevitably the problem of psychology would arise as it starts to get institutionalized. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, and this is what really situates you talk. So in 2011, when I wrote that book, that's the a new unified theory of psychology, where I'm arguing that there is a way to see the world that delineates, gives us a vocabulary, a conceptual map, and a meta-theoretical structure that allows us to see how psychology can actually be seen as a coherent scientific discipline, okay? But actually, the way in which I saw that was actually embedded or in a larger problem, a philosophical, foundational philosophical problem that arises with science and breaks our knowledge systems. So now the current framework that I developed is called UTOC, which is Unified Theory of Knowledge, and is actually situated to say, hey, we can actually solve the Enlightenment gap, which also then grounded then in the solution to the problem of psychology. So it's a huge deal in relationship to kind of really a fundamental shift in the grammar of our knowledge systems to get in right relation, matter in mind, and the nature of science relative to social and subjective knowledge. We don't have that at all. Um, I argue you talk is really the first system that's going to afford us the capacity to get coherent. There. It's not just a problem of psychology. Psychology happens to be particularly important to us and, and in the ways that it's fragmented. But but the problem is, is of how science develops in general and how we should. Well, right. And how to understand scientific knowledge coherently, what it says about the universe and place your subjective quality experience of being, place wisdom and values in relationship to that. And so I basically, the short answer is that science emerged, but it fragmented off psyche and wisdom, okay? And Utah puts together a coherent picture of science with psyche and wisdom for the first time. So it gives us a post-science coherent synthetic philosophy that organizes science's relationship to psyche and relationship to wisdom. And that's, yeah, that's, that's exciting. We clearly don't have that. So, so uh, could, could you define psyche a little bit further? Uh, I've always kind of just thought of it as, as the domain of phenomenological subjective, subjective experience, all those things that we don't have good tools to understand. Right. So the specific definition of psyche that I use okay, is the unique, particular, ideographic perspective and experience of being of each individual in the now. Okay? So your psyche your, is your experience of being conscious, phenomenologically, qualitatively conscious in the now. Now notice, I didn't just say consciousness. I said each ideographic, unique, particular experience of being in the here and now. Okay? Why did I say all those bad, all those words, you know? I don't, it's not just like I like to have multi-syllabatic words. I'm actually using them for purpose. What you notice with those words, if you pay attention to them, 
okay? Unique, ideographic, particular, in the real, subjective, qualitative. They're exactly the opposite words that science generates, okay? Science is about a generalizable view of general processes that gives causal explanatory frameworks why th of the generative mechanisms of what gives rise to the actual empirical realities that we can observe from the outside in an intersubjective, objective way. So science gives rise to a language game, to use a Wittgensteinian term, to justify the world in a way that's completely antithetical to the psyche. Okay? And so what then science, the, then the science got so dominant, it was like, well, we just got to get rid of the psyche and we will just explain mechanistically the whole. And the answer is no, you actually, your language game and metaphysics define it out initially. Okay. That's the nature of the language game you're playing. So if the language game you're playing is you can't then just say, oh, it doesn't matter. You just have to know your justification plays by these rules and legitimizes the world a particular way. Okay. You talk says, yeah, that's not a bad, but it's a limited epistemological structure that then needs to find its way into yoking itself back together with the psyche, okay? And you talk gives the tree of knowledge actually to map the science perspective, which then I'm saying psychology actually fits in the science perspective. And then I have a thing called the I-quad coin, which is then part of the whole garden. The I-quad coin is a, is a psycho-architectural technology that captures the unique human identity function of each of us. And then it's placing the coin in relationship to the tree gives us a metaphysical structure that places the ideographic psyche in connection with the scientific nomothetic perspective of behavior. And that relationship has never been achieved before. Um, and the reason I'm able to do it is because I built a unified theory of psychology and really the unbelievable conceptual difficulty is building a theory that holds these two together. That's the mind matter problem in many ways, or at least it's an epicenter of it. And you talk solves that. And then it shows you how to hold these two perspectives together. So it bridges science and psyche. Okay. So maybe a good idea to just introduce TOK. Uh, yes. So, so just, uh, do you mind just introducing a little bit for people listening? Absolutely. So in 1997, I was stoned one day. <laughs> um, I go back to 1997. Yes, and I actually, you know, I, I use this for creative, uh, outside the box thinking. But anyway, I built in 1996, I had come across this idea of justification. Okay. And what is justification? Justification actually is what turns us um, from primates into persons. Okay. You're both a primate and you're a person. Okay. What do I mean by a person? A person is an entity that is self-consciously aware, can reflect on why they do what they do, give accounts to other people for why they do what they do on your historical stage and take responsibility for what you do going forward. That's what a person is, okay? You get socialized to become a person. It's a particular capacity and you're socialized through it through the process of justification, okay? Which is a propositional language network that tells you, hey, this is what you are and this is how you do what you do and why, and this is what's legitimate. And then you build a little model of that, and that becomes your ego, and you manage that on your persona, and you live in what's called the culture person plane. Okay? That makes sense? Okay? But you also are a perceiving, be acting creature that, you know, shits and <laughs> pisses and eats and does all the things that animals do. You're still an animal. 
a specific kind of animal called a primate. Okay. So people forget that, but you're both a person and a primate. And I was then seeing the dynamics of persons through this lens of justification. Then what happened, just I was stoned, I was like, well, if persons come out of animal mind here, and then I saw animal mind comes out of organism's life, and then organismic life comes out of inanimate matter, and inanimate matter comes out of energy, okay? And in that moment, I then had a picture of energy to matter, matter to life, life to mind, mind to culture, and then that created a taxonomy of the behavior of the things inside of that. Energy actually stores information, and then matter gives rise to the objects on the behavior, and that's like Newton's study, and then you get living organisms like Darwin analyzed, and then you get mental animals, okay, that's crucial, and then you get cultured persons, so you now have information, objects, uh, organisms, animals, and persons nested in energy, matter, life, mind, culture fields. And with that taxonomy, okay, now we not, it's not mind versus matter versus mind. It's energy, matter, life, mind, culture. Okay. And there's a particular kind of relationship between those kinds of categories. And the tree of knowledge maps those uh, relations. And once you see that, at least this is my experience, like, oh, <laughs> this creates a scientific view. And what it does is it differentiates animals from organisms from below, and then uh, persons from primates into animals from above. Uh, and then with that category, you realize, oh, my gosh, the behaviorists, they're doing animal mental stuff. Okay? And then the human psychologists are all doing justification. Uh, and then I actually argued that the, I call the joint points, like to get from life to mind, and then from mind to culture, there are these processes of complexity building. I argued that B.F. Skinner actually saw a huge part of the process by which living organisms would give rise to behaving, really mentally behaving animals. And then Sigmund Freud's key insights about how our ego, superego relative to our id and our tensions between our socialized lives and our animal lives really saw the core, his insights, his theories are a little shaky, his insights really saw the tension between persons and primates, okay? And then I was able to map, theoretically, Skinner's key insights then to life and mind, and then Freud's key insights, and then we would have Skinner and Freud aligned on a physical, bio, psychosocial field system that was coherent and could place our knowledge structures across these dimensions of complexification in a full, understandable, and intelligible package. So there are uh, emergent information processing systems that are connected by these joint point theories. Uh, so l let's just talk for a second about emergence and reduction. Uh, I think this, this provided a whole lot of clarity when dealing with those questions. So at, at each level, there is genuine emergence in the sense that there is novel causality at each level. Is, is that the claim? To understand emergence, uh, let's, let's, you have to break it up into what's called weak. <laughs> and, and some people don't like the term strong. There's a history here. But actually, the specific is, if you look at the tree of knowledge diagram, which I think you show, you're going to see the, there's an evolution of matter, and there's a cone of matter. And then there's a cone of life, cone of mind. Cone, and this is on a dimension of complexification. Now, what's important to realize then is that there's emerging complexification within the dimension of matter, okay? It goes all the way down to energy, and we can trace that. So you get particles, 
and then atoms and then molecules, and then you get aggregate scale stuff happening, meaning particles can all get together, uh, and then they create gas structures or whatever, usually they are nucleons and atoms and whatever. But you can get the point that you get stars, you can get galaxies, solar systems, things like that. Um, so what you are there is you have what, what many people is called everyday weak emergence. Okay, so weak emergence is absolutely, everyone agrees that if you get a bunch of parts together, they cart create aggregate patterns. Those aggregate patterns influence others. And really there's almost everyone agrees. You got to kind of explain stuff, at least according to our human limitations, you got to kind of explain stuff at the aggregate level. Okay. So chemistry has, has to have a vocabulary is different than particle physics. Now, until, you know, there's good reduction arguments within the dimensions that basically says, yeah, but it's really the understanding the aggregate behavior of the parts that is fundamental, and thus a good physical reductionist argument can be made, yeah, but chemistry essentially reduces to particle physics, okay? And ma many physicists then take that, or, or what I would call sort of physical reductionists, take that line of argument and just say, well, that's the whole thing. It's really the four fundamental forces of electromagnetism, gravity, strong and weak nuclear, give rise to the standard theory. That's the core theory. These are the only core causes that we know of in the world. They give rise to aggregate patterns interacting. You go on up the scale from physics, chemistry, biology. Okay. Utah says, no, you made a mistake there. When you jump from chemistry to biology, okay, you weren't going just up a level. It wasn't like going from particles to atoms to molecules. When you got to genes and cells, something else was going on, okay? And it doesn't show just a general single cone of complexification. That's within a level. It shows a fundamental jump, okay? Now, what is that jump? I spent a hell of a lot of time figuring out one. I said, so I'm stoned. I pop out the vision logic. And I'm like, what the hell did I actually draw, okay? Well, actually, what, what that represents is the emergence of a new complex adaptive plane of existence, okay, that is then negentropically organized, meaning that it creates work effort to create a systemic, autopoetic, self-organizing structure that I believe is properly construed as being tied together by information processing and communication networks, Okay. Now, information processing and communication networks, I argue, to be fundamentally novel epistemic processes in the world that absolutely cannot be reduced to the four fundamental forces, okay? And this is what you actually do, get a causal jump so that the connection between stuff gives rise to another causal process, in this case, information processing and communication between cells, that has nothing like it in the inanimate plane, and emerges as a self-organizing system that can't be reduced to its parts. And this then is a different, is a jump in dimensional complexification. It's a novel kind of emergence, okay? Creates a complexity building feedback loop, and then it's stored information at store. And I can explain why information processing cannot be reduced to its parts, um, but that's the essence of it. So life then, and then mind and culture are each planes of existence, it give rise to new dimensions of complexification beyond as a function of information processing and communication networks. Right. So maybe the terms of strong and weak emergence might just not be good descriptors, uh, which I'm starting to th think that's the case. Yeah, they're just, they, they got a history to them. So it's within level or I mean within dimension. 
that gives rise to levels. And in fact, I built the thing called the periodic table of behavior off the tree of knowledge that says, yes, here are the levels. And they're actually primary and aggregate levels, but I delineate primary levels as there's the primary hole at the material level is an atom. And you get particles. You see the periodic table of the elements mapping the atoms, the standard theory of elementary particle physics mapping the particles. Then you get the map of all the molecules. Then you just do that across scale. You jump up, you get genes, cells, and multi-celled organisms. You get neural networks, animals, and animal groups. You get justifications, persons, and groups of persons. What that does is it gives you within level a development of, I mean, within dimension level development, and then between dimension. And then you see it's a two-axis system of, oh, there are within level dimensions of emergence that are pretty common. Everyone kind of agrees with those kinds of things, not really super hard to understand. But then there's these jumps and dimensions. People are confused about that. Um, and yeah, the, I think the argument that new epistemic processes, um, you know, uh, is, is absolutely crucial uh, to understand and that that is a fundamentally novel causal process in the world. Right. And, uh, yeah. So, so there's complexification within, within a plane, but also there's just so much of a novel jump between each plane when you, especially when you have a product system that's optimizing for neg entropy that you just can't use the the tools of the level below it to describe it. It just is hopeless. Exactly. Uh, but but I think that's so often when strong emergence is evoked, I think something something more is meant ontologically. Like we go towards panpsychism or something where yeah, no, something is snuck a, in. The, the, that that freed systems up right. and get into metaphysical ontological confusions. Uh, the tree, vision of the tree of knowledge is very clear. And essentially what most people mean from physical reduction, no, it's one world, one dimension of complexification at one level of looking at it. But this distinction to get it right is, oh, there is this novel jump of dimension plane. And that's why living organisms are fundamentally different and animate, mental and cultural. And then you get, oh, well, it's language information processing communication networks, especially once you understand why those are fundamentally different than physical causation you really do get a nice picture. And I think if you press anyone on the details of it, uh, they have to accept it at some point. Like there's just no way. I mean, you can say in a hand wavy way that you can reduce behavior to fundamental forces, but you, you can't, you just can't. You can't. The re part of the reason, okay, is because each of us are, are as information processing systems. What I do is I create a schematic of you, okay? And it's the generalized schematic of you that I'm fitting using Bayesian analysis, we want to get technical, about what my hypothesis of your form is. And then I grab a hypothesis of your form and then I act that you're the form that fits this. Now notice, if I pull out a generalized abstraction of you and use that form to inform me right. about the way I think about you, right. you're the, the, the particle um, that make up your thing now is completely abstracted lost. I just pull... I don't pull the microscopic analysis of your parts in that form at all. I simply pull the abstraction that I make off of it. And it is that abstraction that then fits into my information processing system, not the infinite tiny little particle quantum states that make up the whole. It's the macroscopic form pulled off the whole that actually creates the information epistemic process. And that clearly has causal impact. And so, so once that task obvious causal impact, now you're like, yes, no, I've Things are abstracting the micros macroscopic off the microscopic. So now the microscopic is no longer causal. The micro It's the macroscopic form that's causal in epistemic systems. And then you're like, well, shit. I mean, if that's happening, then there's no way you can possibly do a physically reductive argument. You're done. 
And the answer is, yeah, you're done when epistemic processes emerge, which they do at life, mind, and culture. That's why you need another dimension. That's why the vision logic of the tree of knowledge is so compelling. It's like, oh, it's within it at some level, but also above it at another level. Getting clear about how it's both within and above is one of the philosophical conundrums that we struggled with, and that there are actually three layers of them. Also, struggled tree of knowledge tells you what the vision logic is, tells you why there are three layers, and gives clarity. And I mean, not just the vision logic, that's why the language of you talk is so helpful. Because, I mean, like you said earlier, one of the problems in psychology was thinking, well, thinking is the science of behavior. Well, then what is behavior? Everything is the science of the behavior of something. Well, if we can narrow this down to what we're talking about ontologically to be the behavior of, namely when it comes to life, the behavior of this specific information processing system, defined by behavioral investment theory and how it behaves. Well, then we have a clear language and and there's nothing spooky going on. There's no weird, strong emergence going on. Everything is still naturally explained through causal mechanisms that can be, well, ontologically explainable by fundamental particle physics, but it still makes sense. Yes, absolutely. And I agree. And certainly, obviously, I spent a huge amount of time trying to delineate the theoretical structure in behavioral investment theory justification they provide the meta-theoretical structure that gives us coherence, both in terms of relationship to vision logic, but then all the key insights that science has given us, evolutionary, neuroscience, the cognitive approaches, the behavioral approaches, and everything else that has afforded us. And the nice thing about these things is they grab all those insights and weave them together in a tapestry, so we now have a meta-theoretical causal framework for understanding this stuff. That's right. It's not magic at all. It's actually unbelievably conservative. You talk, people look at it, it's like, oh, that guy's a quack. You know, he's claiming all this shit. I'm like, no, I'm claiming just foundational endo-naturalism. I'm like, the fundamental assumptions of natural philosophy that virtually everybody made from Newton to Kant when they started on this, this just clarifies it. That's all. And it does it very conservatively, actually. It just takes all the key insights and just ties them together. And it says, one of the epistemological criteria we should be having, and we sort of do, but we lost it because we decided we couldn't have it, is coherence. It's like, hey, is there comprehensive intelligibility here? And everyone, I mean, the psycho- my discipline itself worked on that for a while and then said, but you're never going to have it. So then they, <laughs> so they denied it and then rationalized why they would never have it. And then we stopped looking for it. And, and to me, that's sort of like, I mean, almost might as well not do science. If you can't, if you can't also achieve coherent intelligibility, then, then the, the whole project is really debatable in terms of its utility. At least Absolutely. I think if you wait long enough, science always comes back to coherence. Totally. Uh, and I think that that's, my hope is, uh, of course, it's so, the system is so institutionalized different, but the hope is that people outside will be, of course, oh, yes, of course, there's animal, mental, and culture person, and they operate on different justifications. The idea that you would yoke them all together in mental process, not specify and give it up to the researcher just to develop a design, and then tell you what the model is that doesn't interact with any other model necessarily, because everybody's doing mid-level research that gives rise to six billion different models about what psychology finds, and you're like, any person that's not inside the institution looks at that and that's just silly, you know. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's not the way we define knowledge. I think that's how you end up with mysterianism, or or at least sociologically end up with people buying into mysterianism, right? Oh, of course, of course. Uh, because I mean, if there's a chaotic, fragmented pluralism is the best that the system can offer. What the hell, you know? I, I think that that's a death knell to a knowledge system myself, and I'm really amazed at how much our system has just sort of fell into that without concern. Um, and has lost its concern with it. Uh, so yeah, outside of that, you know, mysticism, any number of different kinds of beliefs. I mean, I'd say even even more prominently from the experience of, of undergraduate students, people coming into the field, I, I think people are often bound to one of the two things where either 
someone just really takes one tradition up and and guards their their stick in the ground and says that's that's it or people obviously recognize this problem but don't have a solution to it so they just appeal to to mystery or to to yeah just to some claim of not knowing and I think institutionally, what what essentially happens is the field then tries to crank out empirical findings. Okay, so there's this other thing, and we're just a, we're just going to get a laundry list. Hey, have you seen the latest empirical findings? You know, it's like so. Okay, so it's just an endless laundry list of well, let's do one more study, and we'll try to find. So you get yeah, totally. You get all right. Here's a paradigm I can relate to. I go psychoanalysis, go existentialism. Okay, here. Screw this. I'm going to religious, religious mystic. There's a lot of wisdom in the East. People wake up and be like, why don't we do Buddhism? I'm like, yeah, good, good suggestion. Um, and then you also get this sort of, uh, rote, uh, generation of new findings that, that are, you know, become fad research. Uh, none of those, in my estimation, are anywhere near as valuable as a coherent, intelligible understanding of the phenomenon. Yeah. So th- th- that's something that surprised me. You, you came to this through a clinical, uh, background as well, right? Where a lot of people kind of just focus on the theory, you you actually dealt with the actual application of it, right? That's a, so right. So in 1994, so I get trained as a good, you know, empirical scientist, uh, and I buy when I'm an undergraduate. I have this notion that it should be, make sense, but then it's like, oh, okay, and then I buy. Oh, it's the scientific method, blah blah blah. Uh, and then I I was under the impression that the scientific method had yielded the idea that certain approaches were better than others. So this is in the, right in the late 1980s where the cognitive and behavioral approaches were waving the flag that they were better than the other approaches and that science had enabled them to make that justification. Uh, by the way, although I'm a well-versed in all that, that's all bullshit, okay? I didn't realize it at the time, but I thought, so I was like, okay, I'm going to follow the science there. Then you get into the clinic room and you also get knowledgeable about the way research is actually done and what was then unfolding at the time which is called the dodo bird finding. It's actually all credible psychotherapies get the exact same basic, you know, certainly in almost every generalized anxious, depressed cluster. It's amazing how common the dodo bird finding is. Anyway, so you get all these generalized effects, okay? And then you get the fact that when you sit with somebody, <laughs> sit with the psyche, okay? I didn't have the term at the time, but it was like you enter into the world with the psyche, and then you get this whole ideographic, there, yes, there are general categories like depression, but it's really this ideographic dance with a unique particular, okay? And you're like, huh, my humanistic side gets pulled in very strong. So it's like, oh my God, but I, I'm totally a scientist. So I'm like, I want, why can't I have a coherent science? I look at medicine, medicine's all fucked up, but they at least have Western medicines like, hey, physiology, anatomy, we can anchor this to human biology, and we know what human biology is. It's living process give rise to physiology and anatomy. They break down. We can study physiology and anatomy. We can divide the systems up, and everyone's works out okay. You know, I was like, hey, you have a bone problem. You see a generalist, and then you go to an orthopedic specialist, and nobody says, oh, the orthopedic specialist, that's the key to health. And I was like, no, that's a part of the system. So, what I'm like, all of these insights make sense, but they should be grounded in the science. Um, and that's when I went from my, I, by my empirical training. And then I was like, but that's not a help. What I really need, like biology is the science of life, I need to know what psychology is. And so, and then um, in 1994, 1995, when I did that, I realized I needed a big picture view and I found evolutionary psychology, which was just coming on the scene at the time. The adapted mind is a, sort of the Bible of evolutionary psychology. It came out in 1992. 
Robert Wright had written a book called The Moral Animal in 1994. And I fell into that. I was like, oh, I didn't really learn evolutionary theory. And I really studied and taught myself evolutionary theory. And I was like, of course, this provides a big picture view. Uh, and so for two years, I was thinking evolutionary psychology was key. And then I stumbled across this justification idea. And then that really blew up evolutionary psychology. Okay. So ironically, because it's a totally evolutionary psych idea, <laughs> um, but it actually blows up evolutionary psychology, um, even as an evolutionary idea. And it shows how limited evolutionary psychology really is. And that's when I shifted away from there and then backed into Utah. I mean, the tree of knowledge system, um, which at the time was in the framework and it grows into Utah itself, the unified theory of knowledge. But anyway, yeah, that, that was, uh, so I started in the clinic room and ultimately I returned uh, through the garden, I actually returned to the proper holding. We talk about psyche and science, um, talk to the proper holding of a unique ideographic uh, lower perspective versus a generalized nomenthetic perspective. The key is an epistemology that produces an ontology that coheres between those two perspectives. And that's what I figured out how right. to do. No, that makes sense. I mean, the, no matter how robust the approaches to therapy might be, uh, behavioral, cognitive, psychodynamic, like you mentioned, there, there just seems like there will always be variability in the way that the clinician applies it. Like what's important is not the the tradition that the clinician subscribes to. It, what's important is just the ability of the clinician to have clarity, have skill, have have always. relationship. Always, yeah. That's exactly, that's, so that's what they find. You can you read Bruce Walmpaul, the Great Psychotherapy Debate, uh, that affords a really empirical articulation of exactly your point. Uh, that is the it's the skill of the practitioner to enter into the unique situation, read and participate in the unique situation well. Uh, behaviors are as inclined to be able to do that as others. And then you, so you get massive within various effects of good therapists versus lousy therapists. So we get that everywhere. And you can say, oh yeah, there's good therapy and there's shitty therapy. And most people are average, not surprisingly. And there are a couple of master therapists. They go in with almost anybody and work well with them. It's amazing. And there are a lot of, and there are about 10% are like shitty therapists. They take relatively healthy people and make them worse. <laughs> you know, so it's all within therapy, relational, idio, you know, participatory dynamics between uh, the vast majority of it is a psychosocial relational dance process, um, not the technical language. I just did a podcast on this like three months ago, not the technical language on the issue. It is the psychosocial relational dynamics that's accounting for almost all the variants, you know, not, you know not, it's hard to put a figure on it, 95% whatever, et cetera. But it is, that's where the act. Yeah. I mean, just pragmatically, that makes sense, right? I mean, you, you could be the most educated person in the world, but there's no way you can totally apply a theory in the clinic room, like it to the letter. Totally. And now actually, the more you do that, okay, we're actually pretty reactive, autonomous creatures. Uh, if we get the sense that we're being dropped into some algorithmic formula that immediately activates us in particular kinds of ways. So the more, if you're, the more refined, and quasi-autistic you are, and especially, no offense, uh, but in that regard, you're not going to read the participatory dynamics of the individual, 95%, there are some exceptions, who want to be seen as a unique individual and valued for their own uniqueness, don't, are going to be then quite resistant to being placed in a preordained structure. And if you're really good at doing that, that's going to be potentially good reasons that would work against you actually in dancing with people. So yeah, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of consideration to be given there in the, the school of thought approach you know while it has some merit uh if you can do better yeah it's no i mean that's a really good point like anecdotally i really find that to be true whenever just speaking with 
friends, general people who aren't psychologists or academics. Uh, whenever people get the feeling that someone's trying to apply a psychological frame to them, it could be anything, trait theory, development, anything. Whenever people feel like they're being boxed in and it feels too inorganic, uh, people get very defensive and, and find all kinds of ways totally. to, to get out of it. All good therapy begins with Rogers, okay, in my estimation. And Rogers did identify the core ingredients. You better have, I would call it foundational positive regard. He called it unconditional. But you better have foundational positive regard. You better have empathy. And you better want to be orient toward the organismic valuing process of the individual, okay? And be very wary about any preordained judgment because they'll react against it and it will, it's going to disrupt the process anyway. Um, so that is the beauty of humanistic approaches. And you, to me, if you're actually going to have uh, you know, mandated therapy, Every there are a lot of other contexts that's weird, but in general, the first point you want to make is align with the psyche, let the psyche do in its organismic valuing process. And then if you're going to bring trait theory to bear or any of those types of things, you better have it aligned with the psyche. Or if you're going to be as, as the expert that's going to portray your knowledge of it, the person may submit to you and say, oh, this is so helpful. And then, <laughs> yeah, right. Investment at all. Right. 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 Okay. So to, to trail back a little bit. Uh, let's talk about behavioral investment theory, uh, the joint point between, uh, between life and, 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 uh, mind. Uh, how did you come up with behavioral investment theory and could you just flush it out a little bit for, for people? Sure. Um, okay. So behavioral investment theory, right. Is, is basically, it's a theory. What is the nervous system doing? Okay. And it's really at one level, super simple. Okay. And it says, Hey, what it, yeah, what's the nervous system do? Well, people, many people call it the organ of behavior. Okay, as a man in neuroscience. What do they mean? Well, it sort of coordinates your activity. Okay, all right. And then you ask, well, how does it do that? Okay. And, and then you say, well, it seems to try to move you towards good things. Okay, it's got some valuation about what good and bad is. And you can see that in your own feeling. Pleasure and pain are pretty base feeling structures, right? Okay, that's good. That's a green light to that thing and red light to that thing. Okay, so there's a, so it's getting you to do, it's got a value to make some uh, difference. And then it's got input structures, sensory and perception input to detect what's out here. It's got interior reception, which basically says, how am I doing? Am I hungry? Am I hurt? Okay, and it's got output structures that energize motion to regulate this flow. Okay, all right. And then the, uh, what behavior investment theory says, yes. <laughs> okay. And what happens to in the ant world of animals, okay, is that this dimension of coordinated movement emerges in the animal kingdom, different than fungi and plants, which are also super complicated and demonstrate a lot of biological intelligence that's complex and living, but they are not, they don't have centralized coordinated movement systems. Okay. This was an Aristotle and all kids, by the way, identify birds and bees as behaving differently than plants and trees, you know, flowers and trees. Okay. They behave as whole units that engage in sensory motor looping. Okay. Meaning that there's an input organized motor output function, which we should call mindedness. Okay. And then the theory is, well, where does that come from? Okay. And behavioral investment theory gives you six meta principles. It says fundamentally what it is, is an investment value system, okay, that now I can hook up with a guy by the name of John Burbakey, okay, and say, actually, yeah, okay. Um, uh, so in his, he's got a framework for 
essentially the way information is processed called recursive relevance realization, which basically means the system is seeking relevance, like what's important, to realize its goals and then recursively evaluate them. Okay. And what I saw is it does that to cultivate paths of investment so that it creates around affordances and stressors to build resource acquisition around survival and reproductive success. And it does it on the principle of least effort, which means you want to expend the least amount of effort to get the most on your return. Okay. And so behavioral investment theory is this idea. It's an investment value system that's cultivating paths of investment through now recursive relevance realization, what I would used to call a neurocognitive process, but now we can specify. So that's the theory. It then organizes six core principles. One's the energy economic principle, which is, hey, you're a self-organizing system. You got to get calories. You have to avoid destruction, et cetera. The second is your tendencies will evolve phylogenetically. It's principle evolution. Natural selection is going to build a structure of an investment value system. There's going to be behavioral genetic variation within a population of individual differences for a host of reasons. That's the third principle. There's going to be then a computational control structure. There's a neurocognitive computational, the nervous systems and information processing, and then communication system. Then there's a learning system of really, I mean, just the base of it is Skinner. Uh, in certain sense, there's an operant structure depending on the consequences and associations. That's old learning language, but still decent. And then there's a developmental sequence. Okay. So then you put all that together, you get a, um, you know, basically a physically bi- and biologically grounded cognitive behavioral neurodevelopmental systems theory that of animal mental behavior that takes all the key insights and coheres them and says, oh, animals are behavioral investors. You know, and that's a cognitive behavioral neuroscience thing grounded. And it's totally consistent with what's called ethology, the science of animal behavior. It grounds out into all, virtually all the insights of behaviorism, cognitive neuroscience, et cetera. And it coheres them together and says, oh, here's a meta-theoretical organization that takes Skinner, uh, takes neuroscience, takes cognitive science developments, and ties them together. And then using the six principles, we can build a consulting model of the oh, sorry architecture of the mind that ties in memory as well as you do. Right. Well, so then, right. So then you're, then I utilize that to basically say, what is the layering of behavioral investment? And there's a sensory motor reflex layering that gives rise to a larger operant experiential system that can give rise to a mental manipulation system. And you can see, and other people have made this comment too, you get sort of reacting reflexive animals and then you get feeling learning animals and you get thinking animals. Uh, part of the learning and then thinking gives rise to the extension of processing first in working and then long-term memory. And that affords the capacity to way in which things will model. And then finally, on top of that, you get talking. Okay. So this gives rise to, yeah, you get a then language. And then humans, that's going to set you up from a primate person jump. So you get this reacting layer, uh, this learning layer, this thinking layer, this talking layer. Okay. And then, and then memory also is part of that structure. And I just take some very standard memory models, badly loop models and et cetera like that and say, oh, yep, yeah, we can stick this into this structure and show a neurocognitive functional architecture um, that, again, is optimally gripped in the sense that it teaches you stuff, but it pulls in all conservative knowledge and ties it together and gives you a model that's comprehensive and intelligent. Right. Do, do you think that, uh, like, like, so I've heard you mention that parts of the joint points might change over time, right? That uh, the evolutionary synthesis, for example, might need to take considerations from what's being learned by the study of complex adaptive systems and so on and so forth. Uh, 
that 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 in itself is very interesting. I want to know more about that. But just in general, like, do you see these models updating over time? Yeah. I mean, first off, so I'm a scientist. <laughs> okay. Uh, I am anchored in a correspondent model of truth where we develop these models and they they get partial truths. I believe in cumulative science, uh, and I'm a, and I do think that we're grabbing a hold of reality in particular ways that does transcend our subjective cultural structures. We can talk about that, but it's limited. And it's always going to be changing. And it's, you know, the island metaphor, we expand our island, but the actual space of what we don't know and the new information is going to come in, okay? And none of the joint points are solidified, really, I would argue, okay? So obviously, I put at the bottom quantum gravity because like everybody, I'm like, well, and I'm, I have good knowledge, conceptual knowledge, but I'm no physicist. Um, you get general relativity, you get quantum mechanics is a particular relation people don't really don't know. And believe me, in physics, I mean, we have dark energy, muon I mean, models. Who, who knows? the hell knows what's going on there? So that joint point is, you know, I just like to say, hey, between Big Bang and quantum field theory, we can say there's an energy information backdrop to the material complexification. That's all I say. And I think that's solid. I'd be amazed if that is overturned. I mean, that's just basically quantum theory, Big Bang, that's going to hold. Then you get into the natural, you know, synth- modern evolutionary synthesis, where we have unbelievably powerful insights that yoke genetics, especially population genetics, to natural selection. And we per- bold this together and we can then say, okay, this provides a causal explanatory framework for organismic complexification. And it does. And it's an outline for that. And it's one of the great accomplishments of the uh, 20th century. Um, but... There are a lot of issues with it. I mean, really, when you get down to it in terms of what it can actually explain uh, in terms of other kinds of things that are happening, you know, like bacteria, they engage in gene swapping. Okay. So like, yeah, the genes leave the bacteria system, jump in another, this is how we get CRISPR, by the way, then they pick it up and they insert genes and all this other shit. So gene, horizontal gene transfer between living structures, you know, that the modern synthesis, it gets fuzzy when you start saying, oh, how the hell does it do that? Okay. Uh, there's other things like Lamarckian transmissions of information across generations. Okay. You see that kind of stuff. I've talked to a number of biologists that say, man, the way complexity weaves itself in across generations, it fe- it's got a lot more power than natural selection really seems to be able to generate. It seems to be able to find its way into complexified niche structures better than just the uh, mutation kind of structure. There's some sort of complexity building feedback inside the physiological and intergenerational transmission. Okay. That's got a Lamarckian flavor, I believe. All right. And then you go back. So if you start adding this kind of stuff, the modern evolutionary synthesis is just going to, you know, it's going to grow, but it's going to be look like Newton to Einstein. Okay. You get in, I mean, behavioral investment theory needs an enormous amount of specification. Okay. It's, it's like, I mean, I got to find out Carl Friston's work and predictive processing. You got to find John Verbeke's work. I mean, if the evolutionary synthesis, you know, wobbles, well, then we got to, I'm built on that. That's going to then wobble. So for me, the issue is all of these systems um, are outlines that do afford very useful gripping for modeling and afford you an enormous amount to understand that will be part of the cumulative growth. They're not going to be like overturned so that the principle of evolution isn't valid anymore, but it will be updated, refined, shifted so that uh, 50 years from now, things like, yeah, he thought it sort of was that way, be way overemphasized that aspect. And now this was underemphasized and now we're going to actually really have a much better sense. And then I'll look at it and say, yeah, I was kind of ignorant about that, blah, blah, blah. So that's the, that's the picture. Um, the most, the more important thing is 
you know how big a deal quantum gravity and modern evolutionary synthesis are in the world? I'm, I'm sitting here going, the two other fucking joint points, people. <laughs> there's, there's a whole, like, there are two theories that are as important as that, that I happen to stumble upon, me. And, like, everybody knows about these other two. And it's like, no, there's a mind, a like-to-mind joint point and a mind-to-culture joint point that we can specify with almost as much coherence if we've just paid attention to it. That should blow the Academy's mind. You'd be like, what? these are the two greatest, uh, you know, accomplishments. You're saying there's another two right here that's just available for apples for us to pick off a tree? It's like, yeah, brother, you know, uh, let's pay attention to that. That's a huge deal. Um, so just the outline of them is super important. Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, VIT is really solid. And like like you said, uh, uh, 4E cognition, for example, is very recent. And I, I think on the cusp of really being solidified. And I'm sure it's going to change over the next 50 years. And it's very important to John Verbeke's work at uh, recursive relevance realization. But what's important is the structure uh, to, to say that there are these joint points in this kind of analogical that a way of looking at things that is epistemically clear. That is important, and it's going to be important in guiding those developments in the future. Totally. <laughs> Amen. You're singing to the chorus. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, so jumping up a little bit, let's talk about justification hypothesis. The next okay. joint point. Right. Uh, okay. So this is cool. This is, I mean, just is a really cool, uh, it's my first real novel idea. Um, and then it grounds uh, at that level, grounds everything else. Um, so since if your viewers are familiar with John Berbeke, we can say, hey, the four P's of knowledge, okay, perspectival, participatory, procedural. I'm going to joke all those and actually primates do all that, okay? Persons do propositions. As well, on top of that, John certainly agrees with that. And then the structure and function of propositional knowledge, okay? Structure and function. Justification, hypothesis, and systems theory gives us a very clear picture of this thing, okay? Um, it's, it's logically derivable, and then it makes clear evolutionary psychological predictions, novel predictions, okay, that then feed back and give an enormous amount of credibility so that essentially the outline of this problem is solved as far as I'm concerned. So what is it? So basically it just says this. Okay, so you have increasingly sophisticated hominids 500,000 years ago who, according to like Michael Tomasello, are able to sync up and generate we spaces, okay? And meaning that I can read your mind and have a sense of what your intentionality is, and you and I can develop a shared attention and intention about the world and kids pointing and knowing that there's an intention and a shared attention is a classic archetypal example of what that is. And then we build this. And so now we're hunting mammoth together. Uh, we're gathering berries together. Okay. We're sitting around a fire. We're engaged in music. All right. And we're syncing up. And then we get a symbolic tagging ability. Okay. So that we can create a, an association between a word, a grunt, and a mammoth, okay, and a spear, and the fire, all right, so we get a noun-verb tagging system, okay, that gives rise to a symbolic shared notion, and then that shifts into a symbolic syntactical notion, okay, whereby we're their antelope gets into there are the antelope, that's the shift from a symbol pairing that gives us intuitive sense to a propositional statement, there are the antelope, okay, that's a big deal. And when we go propositional, the reason that propositions are really important is because they create a positive assertion about is and ought. There are the antelope. Okay. 
And what that does then is it's immediately when you can say a proposition that has meaning, it takes up, I like to say, it takes up positive space, okay? And then what that means also is then negative space is opened up around it, okay? What's the negative space? All of the things that would threaten the truth of this positive statement, which can be generally framed in is and ought kind of concerns. Like, for example, no, those, are, those aren't antelope. Those are llama. Okay, or there are no antelope over there, or they were there yesterday. These would be all true statements. And the other is, why ought to I be paying attention to this? There are rabbits over there. There are berries over there. I'm enjoying music over here. Okay, so to bring a propositional structure is to say, this is truth, and we should be paying attention to it relative to other things. Okay, that's implied that we should be paying attention. There are implications where I'm telling you this because we're going to go hunt them. We're going to try to corral them or do something, you know, that's relevant to that. And then the issue is, well, wait a minute, maybe not. Okay. On is and ought. All right. So why is that important? Well, the maybe not gets opened up questions. Okay. Questions then are linkages to the negative space in relationship to a proposition. How do you know? What about this? Who know? Well, who's saying this, etc. Who? And now let's think about question. Who? What? When? Why? Okay. Notice how easy those are. You know, it's easy. And hang out with kids. Kids, as soon as they learn propositions, they'll all of a sudden they'll pick up questions and then they'll shoot out. <laughs> they just because they basically procedural. Why, Dad? Why, Dad? Why, Dad? Because <laughs> I said so. Okay. Now, why is all of this important? Basically, the proposition, negative space, creates a question-answer dynamic, okay? Whereby to reach equilibrium means you need to build a system of justification, a shared system of justification, which is a propositional network of a shared belief about the world and what we ought to do, okay? So then to gain equilibrium means we have to engage in question-answer dialogues to build networks of propositions to describe is an ought. Okay? And what that says is it takes language, self-conscious reflection, the emergence of question-answer dialogues into the evolution of systems of justification. Okay? And that's an actual... Now, if you go into, like, hey, what are some of the key insights of 20th century sociology and philosophy? It's like, actually, people live in net socially constructed systems of justification. Okay? Now, the many people take the implication of that epistemologically and say, oh, see, science is just one of those. Okay? Uh, and because of that, hey, it's sociocultural too. You talk, and through the tree of knowledge, it's ontologically, it's an ontological assertion that we are networks of justification builders. <laughs> Okay, so now the nature of it says it describes what our propositional question answer dialogues are doing. We're engaged in the dynamics of justification, building justification systems, okay, which is a totally different perspective. Now it's not because everybody's all then trapped by the epistemological implications. Well, how do you know you're in your culture? I'm in my culture, blah, blah, blah. Utah comes along and say, yeah, that's what you're all doing ontologically. That's an unbelievably important ontological, not just epistemological, ontological insight. Okay. And it is what makes you operate on a culture, capital C culture, person plane. There's little C, chimpanzees have little C culture, capital C culture, person plane that causes us to rise as persons above our primate existence 
and it's living on the justificatory plane. Okay. So what it immediately does is it takes culture in anthropology, gives it a capital C, and then specifies that the organizing glue of human belief value networks are these propositional networks of justification that then live, and people like Bronfenbrenner see this across ecological scales. There are micro little justifications. You and I, when we hook on to a thing in itself podcast, it has a mission, it has a context. If I all of a sudden start talking about my sex life in weird ways, it's like, hey, that's not justifiable. That's not the frame of our little micro context, right? And then this lives in a podcasting world, which lives in a whole other world. And these are macro, meso, micro levels of context of justification that we can specify. Um, so it immediately affords us this big picture view of the structure functional organization. I'm a psychologist. Okay? So what I'm interested in is the much more microscopic individual and dyadic relational. I'm not so much interested in the large scale histories of justifications, although I am because of very broad knowledge, I mean, uh, interest area. But the real interest for me then is what does this mean about myself and you and my relational world? Okay. What, what, the comp, what this does is it says, hey, these propositional networks and question answer dynamics open up an entirely new kind of mentation. Okay. That is fundamentally different than the perspectival psyche mentation, okay? It's different both in terms of its medium, it's propositional instead of perspectival sensory perceptual. But here's the other thing. It is completely intersubjectively available, okay? Unlike the psyche, okay, which I can't get out of my head, my ego persona goes right through my skin in the same informational form. And you, I just have people practice that. Say something publicly. Hi, I'm Greg. I'm here to talk to you. And then just say it privately. The informational form doesn't change. Okay, it just goes right through the skin. That's totally different than the experience of red. I can't see your experience of red. What does that mean? It means that it opens up a highway, a mental highway between us to your pro previously private thoughts. Okay? And that means you now have access to my thinking, which is great when we're on the same page and I can share, hey, we both want to hunt antelope. Okay. But let's say you're a much better rabbit hunter. Okay. And I'm a better antelope hunter. And we're both interested in competition. I mean, we both have status needs that we're barely conscious of. And I come in and say, hey, I found some antelope over there. Immediately, your system is like, hmm. -hmm. Okay. But you can't say, well, I don't want to go hunt an antelope because that makes me feel weak. Okay. Because that's not going to be justified. Instead, you might say, I saw rabbits over there. We should consider that. Okay. And then I say, well, why? Why don't we go over here? It's like, well, because we got rabbits last time. Now, what am I, sh the justification for why you're doing what you're doing now is available to the community because of the intersubjective highway. Yet, if you think about what your real interests are, this is the Freudian insight, your animalistic self-centered interest can conflict significantly with what's socially acceptable. Okay? Right? You know, I mean, just, hey, you know, be cool with every thought you've ever had being unbelievably public on the internet. Are you cool with that? No. <laughs> okay? No, not really cool with that. And the reason is it reveals aspects of you that are potentially threatened to your reputation. So you have to regulate. So 
the problem of justification now is how do I explain what is and ought to be relative to my interests, really, and my reputation and social value in the system? Okay, which now is an unbelievably complicated question. Okay, And then we say, well, if evolution designed this, the ego and the persona should be organized to navigate the dynamics in the perspective fields of in the intersubjective persona and the hidden subjective relation, although potentially available, down into the fully contained primate perspective. Okay. So then this gives rise to what's called the updated tripartite model, okay, which is a direct follow from the logic of the problem of justification. And it says you have a primate experiential self. You have an egoic justifier that sits in relation based on what's called the Freudian filter. The Freudian filter is trying to rationalize what it's seeing, i.e. make sense out of, and repress what's potentially threatening. It's a total Freudian. And it does so to manage the persona, okay, in part. And so you then have in what I call so the Freudian filter, and then the Rogerian filter is the persona-ego relation which is like, we're afraid of other people's judgments, so we're going to regulate. So when you look at human consciousness, you see it has a feeling system, a perceptual system, and it has this self-organized primate system, it's tracking, it's attachment, it's status. It's got its egoic propositional justifying self-reflective system and its persona, and it has filtration dynamics between these that are exactly as predicted as to the way nature would design a mental organ of justification to navigate the problem that emerges when you get question-answer dynamics and the need to justify yourself on the social Right, stage. and like you were saying, this is another emergent joint point because and there you go. Right. Yeah, yeah, I mean exactly because because once you have gender linguistics uh, propositions and shared intentionality in a network of people, then you just can't explain what's going to occur from there using the tools of the model of the animal below it. You get an entirely new complex adaptive design mediated by a new information processing communication network. <laughs> it's tied together through capital C justifications and us as persons rather than primates navigating on justificatory structures. And that is completely embedded in the informational epistemic content and can't possibly really used to the you know, energy ontic structures at, at any physically reductive. Well, how, how did John Rebecki's work come to play a role here in the epistemic categories of justification? <laughs> Right. Well, um, so, yeah, so I, you know, I'm, I get pulled in through rebel wisdom and, you know, some challenges that I have in my own department and my own identity and, you know, definitely identifying this meta-modern weird space of, you know, post-modern blah, blah, blah. And then I hear John's, you know, 50 uh, lectures on the awakening meaning crisis. Um, and then I find an as soon as I heard recursive relevance realization. Okay. Um, I was, it was a lock and key function. So I had developed Neuro, a weak, behavioral investment theory just anchors itself on a weak neurocognitive functionalism. What I mean by that is it, it doesn't take the strong form of computational theory, it takes the weak form of computational theory, specifies what we mean by information processing, and essentially gives rise to a predictive, pro, initially a predictive processing model like Carl Friston. Okay? But what John's work did with recursive relevance realization, okay, is he brings that, it, it dives into predictive processing and connects to behavioral investment theory clearly. But what it does is it affords a cognitive and intelligence model 
that's also very tied to the phenomenology of perspectival participatory uh, procedural consciousness and a transjective engagement in the world, and then gives a much richer articulation, okay, of the dynamics, the complicated iterative dynamics of cognition than I had, okay? So now I can take neurocognitive function and say, oh, it's recursive relevance realization. And it works iteratively with the unified theory in unbelievably cool ways. So, so for example, um, you look at the influence matrix. That's another model that emerged, okay? And this is basically modeling the primate heart and the self-other. And it says, hey, we're tracking our social influence and relational value on the dimension of power, love, and freedom, and we're having emotional reactions, okay? Well, what that actually is, in John's language, is it's a schematic of the fundamental principles of relational change that we're going to be tracking for recursive relevance realization. And now I can take John's me, oh, when I'm looking at you, I'm engaged, my influence matrix is engaged in tracking recursive relevance realization, whereby we're trying to move ourselves towards social influence, relational value in a mutual space of cooperation. But when we get deviant, then all of a sudden we'll attend to that. And the influence matrix is tracking those systems to, to realize and protect various affordances. Okay. So it's, it's super cool to then be like, oh, I can now take John's model of cognition, fuse it with my model of social motivation and, and emotion. And I, as a clinician, I'm more motivation, emotion. John's, of course, more on the cognitive perceptual side of, uh, you know, focused on mentation. Um, but this is just a beautiful then synergy. So um, to, to find John's basically key, I had a lock for it and he just drops a key in there and it, and it explodes a key aspect of it. Um, you know, now I often put the V on the behavioral investment uh, architecture. I'm like, well, really, John's stuff can just fuse right with behavioral investment theory. And we should really think about that as a meta theory of neurocognitive behavior um, now, because those two systems are really linked together. So I mean, like, even taking a step back, what's really helpful is that the way that you apply this gives us a, a, a definition of cognition, because cognition is really hard to pin down. Like, you can understand the subject matter of cognitive science, but what is cognition is really hard to to get down. Totally. Uh, and that's the beauty of, especially I think when, when you place, I mean, John certainly sees this, obviously he's hunting for a synoptic integration of cognitive science. That's part of his whole, he sees the exact same problem in cognitive science as in psychological science, which cognitive breaks off of and really has its history very much and basically defined against behavior, <laughs> where behavior is defined against mind. Okay, so notice we go and behavior defined against mind, and then cognitive comes back to trying to define against behavior. These are all justification systems. But if you're going to be pulling yourself out and generate a word, cognitive, that is overlapping with artificial intelligence, it's a shit show of confusion about what the hell it means. Okay, and so John's work brings a lot of clarity, most obviously dividing what we mean when we say cognition from a neuroinformation perspective and the functional emergence of that, and what we mean when we say cognition as in to know uh, from more of an epistemological perspective, his four, four Ps and the model that he affords. And then you put that in the context of the language that you talk affords on the big systems of behavior and mind in particular. Now we need to, I argue, we need to find behavior, we can find mind, we can find cognition, consciousness, self, uh, and a whole host of other terms that historically were not going to, they were just mush. And now we can actually have an architecture that defines them. Okay. Uh, going back to the idea of treating science as a justification system, now using the language that we've developed of a justification system. Um, so it seems to be kind of finding a middle path between between the hard modern concept to the postmodern critique, where science is a constructed system, but it just is 
very good at describing the ontological reality. Is, is that sort of the argument? Yeah, so where, absolutely. So it, it, it does, to me, uh, so I'm what's called a transcendent realist, okay? Uh, so first, uh, and, and, and a ba- which basically is right along the lines of the thought that was developed by uh, Roy Bashkar, who's a philosopher of science and developed critical realism. Uh, and I didn't know about Bashkar's work until 15 years ago, certainly after I developed the structure. But actually, Bashkar's critical realism, which is literally critical, like postmodern, realism like modernism, is actually specifically a kind of philosophical synthesis that affords us clarity about the ways in which human beings socially get together. They call the four planes of social interaction. They're not exactly like you, but they're similar to your knowledge. And then they interact to then build models of the world. And then science affords us a particular structure that does give rise to ontologically justified realist interpretations. Okay. Um, so, so yes, it's sort of, it's definitely a both and. So I'm basically saying science is not just some pristine, logically empirically derived entity that is completely removed from human knowing. Definitely not. It's a justification system situated in a social historical context. So we can now, we can place that and it's going to carry all those dynamics. However, the entire methods of science, the way in which it's structured in terms of measurement, logical analysis, quantification, and experimental elimination of alternatives in various places, most notably physics, has afforded it the capacity to generate models Okay, that that I think when I say transcend human subjective and social knowing, here's what I mean by that. I'm a transcendent realist that says, hey, if we were to find an alien life form that engaged in propositional knowledge about the world and had a model for how the material universe worked, that model would include the four fundamental forces and the particles and atoms. Okay. If, if, they, if it has totally different forces <laughs> that they discovered based on their categories of mind, then I'm wrong. I would, I, I subscribe to what, um, Roy Bashkar, I think, makes a case called, he calls it the TINA principle, which stands for there, T, is no alternative. Okay. Meaning our analysis of the standard model of elementary particle physics into atoms and the way in which we're able to model behavior across the universe, there's no way that there's a a whole nother set of atoms or whatever entities that are really causing events to happen. There's just no alternative. That's the argument. So if it were the case that another alien system we encountered, they would come and we say, hey, what's your model of material universe? The models would align. And if completely different knowing systems build identical models about the structure, then you can argue your ontology of the ontic. The ontic is the word for what's real. Ontology is our theory of that. Our ontology is not epistemologically derived or dependent, but is actually independent of just our knowing structures. We can transcend our knowing structures to yield. If a whole other epistemic system that's completely independent gets the same picture, well, that's uh, a realist uh, justification, and I'm a, that's what I mean. I'm a transcendent realism when it comes to things like the standard theory of elementary particle physics and uh, our atomic theory of matter. Right, right. The the ontic would still be the same. Yep. So that's that's. But but you know, I'm <laughs> the Kantian idealist. Maybe right. Maybe they have a totally different system, and then I'll be humbled by that. And then it will be more. Then the postmodern critique will, and the and the idealist epistemological critique 
will be will be would hold, and and I would be wrong. But that's where I am in relationship. It, it would destroy yes. my brain. It would blow up my mind if that would yeah, happen. Yeah, it would. Right, it would, it would, right. My whole my whole system. I would be very humbled by it. It would be weird. Um, and so anyway, but that that's where I am. I don't see how that's even possible myself. But I'm always open to new things. Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I know what you mean. I mean, like. The like the meat of it is that there will always be historical contingencies in our practice of science, right? Like that, there's no way to avoid that. Like, yeah. no, but but we did do something special with the epistemology of science, uh, and the cumulative nature of that project and the way it's unfolded to me makes me certainly for the physical sciences transcendent realists. I think we can achieve okay, and then you talk, then it comes along and says, yeah, actually, we start to build. Obviously, it's too isolated. I mean, we need a lot more people eyes on this from a lot more different perspectives of justification for me to, I have confidence because I'm inside it of what, uh, you know, the tree of knowledge in Utah does for us. But I, I think we can achieve that. I think because then you get continuity and then if there's grounded continuity, you get an emergent transcendent realist picture across the uh, whole structure. Yeah. And I mean, like, I think the way of achieving that is, is, is exactly what you're doing, right? Like being, having conversation with people, uh, trying to elucidate this, making sure that people are conscious of how they're operating in their fields and gaining greater ontic clarity is the way to do that. Yeah, totally. And, and, and to me, I just, yeah, I just do encourage everybody. Yeah. The grammar about their matter, mind. No, don't do that. It's energy, matter, like mind, culture. Right. <laughs> you know, and you do that and all of a sudden what seems to be an impossible puzzle becomes a lot more. No, absolutely. I mean, this is not just a system to learn once. It's a language to learn how to speak. You talking now. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I did a podcast with, with James Robert Brown, and he, he wrote a book on the science force and just a history of that construction <laughs> mathematics. And at the end of it, he brought up a really good point that stuck with me was that the what what where the where those discussions have moved today from they were and say the um from what was the for the higher superstition book in that time, sure. 1994. Uh, 1994. Thank you. Uh, there to today is that people are no longer criticizing like the fact of science. Postmodernists are no longer criticizing the fact of science or the enterprise of it. They're criticizing the institutions, and, and that's important. Like we're, we're, we need to make sure that that people have access to institutions, and we're getting diverse perspectives, and and getting a greater probability of success and 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 change in academia. That's probably a better place to put criticism than the actual ontic value of science as a justification. Totally. Uh, absolutely. And that is right. Uh, and there's always been a fuzzy line. And, and of course, many postmodern and modernists, virtually all modernists agree. Yes, a lot of forces go into what gets funded, of course, and how things get framed. And that uh, enormous shaping, the whole peer review is obviously at some level, you know, contextualized by people's paradigms and all of this other stuff. So there's re- you have to have a postmodern critique, in my estimation. The real best postmodern critique, which we can now transcend from a Utah perspective, is there's no worldview. There's no usable worldview in science. And you need a worldview, although they're anti any grand narrative. Social, historical, contextual living requires language game worldviews. Okay. And since science really doesn't have one, we need to be very careful about taking facts and then jumping those facts into worldviews that are going to have consequences. And the facts, Although you can isolate them and define what they mean in particular relation, they sit in different worldviews in different ways. And since science lacks a worldview, we need to be very skeptical of that. Okay, uh, and and to me, you talk then comes along and say, yeah, it lacked a world, it lacked a worldview. 
Okay. <laughs> but, but now, all right, now we actually have a worldview that takes the critique of postmodernism and ontologically validates it and then situates the whole thing in a new picture theory that's like, actually, now, yeah, no, this is a transcendent, uh, so we'll set the stage down the road for a transcendent worldview, which I believe we need in the new global age and, and how everything's changing and we actually need a, a, yeah, a grip, an optimal grip on reality and our place in it. Uh, and, and man, we don't definitely don't have that. And if we can actually get that, maybe that will help. I, I really like, uh, John Reiki's terminology for this cultural cognitive grammar that, okay. like, I mean, science and philosophy have to be general. That's, that's our great ambition, but you can't ignore history. You can't ignore cultural development, especially when you're dealing with life and mind. Totally. And in fact, I'm so uh, on board with that. I will now, I mean, I just released a video, you talk 20, you know, in the enlightenment gap. I am saying, hey, people say, oh, you're saying that you talk is everything. No, okay? I want to be very clear. I'm actually situated in a particular cultural grammar, okay? You talk doesn't have a lot of relevance if you're in Chinese, you know, philosophy 300 years ago or Aristotle. If you, I wouldn't come to Aristotle and be like, hey, there are four dimensions. Aristotle, I mean, the entire Aristotle frame is that there are four dimensions, right? I'm situated in a particular socio-historical context that gave rise to a particular grammar, Okay. And that grammar did then has a crucial role in creating then a fragmented, chaotic, fragmented pluralism that gives rise to a meaning and mental health crisis that Jonathan so uh, clear in his articulation of. Um, so yeah, this is, this is about grabbing the grammar. It's about knowing you come from a grammar. Of course, if you understand justification systems, you realize, oh, systems are always then really emerging in relationship to other systems. They're always, you're just, the energy to justify is always placed in the context of previous systems of justification. So there's an evolutionary history there. So then you will then should identify as, as you know, it's a postmodern language game insight. Oh, I'm playing a language game as a function. And my argument is, yeah, and we can transcend that if we have the right tools. And that's amazing. Yeah, and that's cool. yeah absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that is the bittersweet part of doing this, right? That we're constrained by our history, right? our place in history. Like, well, I, I spent a lot of time on Hegel. And, and so when I see your system, it's just ringing to my ears. But I can't put those in dialogue. Just because that's lost, like like you said, the Hegelian system goes away before doesn't go away. I don't want to be too strong with that, uh, but but the, the developmental trajectories of these different fields are are just too different. That if you want to connect them, you you're gonna to have to go and build the language from top to bottom rather than find something that already exists. Yeah. Okay. Um, shifting gears a bit, uh, I want to talk about depression. Uh, so you had a little chapter of the book dedicated to applying Getty to understanding the behavioral shutdown model depression. Um, could you talk about that? You know, you talk, it, it gives rise to a totally new way of doing psychology. Okay. Which I now in my recent book, I'm really delineating. It's called mental behaviorism. And, and then, then what that says is, Hey, we should be clear that our uh, constructs are very fuzzy based on the structure, the epistemological structure, almost anti-ontological structure. So it makes that prediction. And then it makes the prediction that if you take a UTOC lens, we can pull, see that fuzziness, and then pull a through line uh, through constructs, tie them together, and then have much more clarity about their ontology. So I just want to make that as a general point. A lot of the dissertations that I supervise in my doctoral, uh, for my doc students, are about that. So we have done this with dreams. We've done this with interpersonal violence, okay? Uh, we just did it with borderline personality disorder. We just did it with psychological mindfulness, all right? Um, so 
the, the, there's a method here that says, hey, you can assimilate and integrate key concepts. All right? The first concept I ever did was depression. Okay. So now we ask, what is depression? In fact, I'm going to put out a little video of, on what Jordan Peterson gets right and wrong about depression. And uh, yeah, and, and actually, he's he's a he's a great person to go to in this regard. I'm not not getting entangled. He's just he's a good theoretical clinical psychologist. Okay, and if you listen to him, he's like, hey, you got a dopamine structure. There's weird stuff going on with serotonin. There's an evolutionary status dynamic. There's all sorts of biomechanical, uh, biomedical stuff that can go wrong and influence it. There's also shit that happens in your problems and living. And it's really just this sort of cluster. And what we call depression is really funky. And, and then he gets all hesitant. Okay. And that's right in terms of that's a nice articulation of where we are and the various facets. What's wrong is just the ontology. We are, our ontology is all off. Okay. The reason our ontology is all off, A, problem of psychology. And then B, the way we try to apply the world, where basically depression is situated in a medical context, psychiatry, which then looks at the world in terms of uh, distress and dysfunction and then disease, and then affords us this idea that, oh, depression as part of a medical complex must be a disease, meaning in implying that there's broken biology in its cause, Okay. And then we, so when you grab a hold of depression as having potentially broken biology, which by the way, I think there are some probably do, but also is much more than that in many cases doesn't, then you get this confusion. And this is what Jordan Peterson really gets. If you, well, do we diagnose, if you live under a bridge as a homeless person and are miserable, are you, and then you score high in depression, are you depressed? Well, I did studies on what um, what psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, no one agrees on that basic question. Why not? Because some people are walking around with the, with the biological, ideological model and meaning, meaning, oh, well, if you have obvious problems in living, okay, that cause the sadness, then obviously that's just normal sadness. In fact, there's a bereavement exemption always been. If you're just lost your child three weeks ago, and you can't sleep, and you're crying all the time, and your own life has any meaning, we're going to slap a depression diagnosis on you, okay? And they don't. But it's also the case, what if you're homeless? Well, they do. There's no homeless. (laughs) Okay? So anyway, there's this unbelievable cluster of confusion because we don't know medicine needs a way to categorize it. It sort of does and sort of doesn't, okay? And that's just sort of that's a diagnosis of all the confusion. Utah comes along with behavioral investment theory and says, oh, depression is a state of mental behavioral shutdown. Okay. That's what it is. And so many people listen, of course, that's what it is. I'm like, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Only now is it, of course, what it is. So what do we mean by that? Well, if you take the logic of behavioral investment, okay, means let's say you have energy, desire, and drive, you're going to expend it towards particular work effort to get a return on that effort. Okay. If you, if you fail to get the return on the investor, you're going to get frustration and energize yourself more. Okay. If you can't avoid pain, you're going to get anxious and you're going to try to avoid more. If frustration and anxiety do not alleviate, okay, do not alleviate the problem. The next best thing you do is you give up and emotionally hibernate and hope that it passes 
And ideally, you're actually situated in a network of relations that says, hey, I am sick and I need to shut down. Help me. So it's actually a communicative structure for social primates to say, come take care of me. Other animals will just go hibernate. Okay. So what am I saying? I'm saying, oh, its system shuts down. Okay. By design. Well, then how does it do that? Well, actually, the way you would shut a behavioral system down at its core is that you jack up the negative affect system and its reactivity so that it's identifying threat and problems high. And you, what the key of depression is, is an anhedonia. You pull down the desire approach pleasure system so that it's no longer even seeing possibilities for investment. It's just going to sit on seeing possibilities for threat and hibernate while this is hopefully the system goes over because you've already done frustration and anxiety. Okay. And so then the system downgrades itself into you are psychologically sick. By the way, depression is essentially a animal organism to animal sick mode. Okay. That says there's no good at passive investment for you to be taken care of. Shut down, send some signals that you're in trouble. Okay. And then, and then sit. And so you don't feel like doing shit. <laughs> you feel like shit because it's a bad scenario. You don't feel like doing shit. Because it, especially the initiation of behavioral activity gets undercut by depression. So depression turns off the initiation switch. That's why it's so hard to get out of bed, so hard to start stuff when you're depressed. It causes you to anticipate problems and things. So you see things as pointless. You feel helpless. You feel hopeless. The justification system goes right on this and starts an iterative ruminative process. Okay. So now you look at all the symptoms of depression. First off, there's a biological shift. Normally, you get hypersomnia, more sleeping, less eating. Interestingly, those things can be disrupted. Depends on the situation, depends on the person. You get fatigue. All depression has to have either the jack up of the negative affect system or the pull down of anhedonia. Virtually all of them have both. This is the epicenter. Okay, So you get all of the symptoms now being organized functionally by this really simple description. Okay, And then you ask, you put it in an animal mental behavioral context, and you're like, well, what causes shutdown? Well, then you have three broad categories immediately present themselves. Okay, One is the shit of the world that they talk that, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson would talk about. And I would talk about like train of, you know, if I was on the train to Auschwitz, okay, train to Auschwitz, you're fucking depressed. I mean, you're just muted probably and just uh, can't, and can't believe it and in denial. And, you, and, you know, what else are you doing? And the reason is the entire system now has collapsed. Your entire system of behavioral investment is taken away from you. And you are now on the path to full such suffering with nothing you can do about it. That if you take an inventory, a Beck depression inventory on the train of Auschwitz, you know, the average score is going to be in the depressed range. And we're not going to give diagnoses to these people. This is what's called a depressive reaction. If your kid dies, okay? And I would argue if your entire life starts imploding because you have uh, alcohol problems, you can't get a job, you end up homeless. I mean, come on. Right, you end up in prison. There are a lot of things that can constrain and create a depressive reaction, what I call, which is in line with the problems of living, and makes perfect sense that you're shutting down. This, by the way, many people wouldn't diagnose a homeless person because it makes perfect sense. Okay, we should just have a classification that says, I think this is a depressive reaction where the shutdown is in line with the developmental difficulties that this person has. It's okay. There. We are complicated biological creatures, okay? You can get strokes, for example, mini strokes, all right? 
Many strokes and other kinds of things can cause that positive and negative affect system to get broken in particular ways. There are things that give rise to what I would call depressive diseases, okay? The biologic can break. And there are some cases that are so pervasive where it's like, oh my God, I think this entire system is essentially shifted into what I would call a melancholic depression that can only really be best explained in the culture and, you know, the family or whatever. This, This person is in a place of melancholic depression, that's a depressive disease, okay? So now we have, and historically, you have reactive and endo, and and this depressive disease would be endo, meaning within the person, reactive meaning to to what's going on. There's another category that's most obvious, what I call neurotic depressions, okay? Now, neurotic depressions emerge when the behavioral investment, influence matrix, and justification systems in the biological uh, primate organ are behaving totally normally, but they are behaving maladaptively, okay? That creates a reciprocal narrowing, to use John's term, and dead ends you into the world. And I see this all the time in the clinic room, okay? So how does this work? People get injured, okay? They have negative reactions to the negative feelings, and then they bring coping that makes shit a lot worse. This happens all the time. Okay. And it's the coping, I like to say, is like, it's like water on a grease fire. And then the water on the grease fire causes things to spread. So what's an example? So you get a depressive individual, okay, who comes in, I hope that my adjustment to college is going to go well. Okay. And I better do it, you know, because, and then they get there and they try to go to a party and they talk awkwardly to somebody. And the first midterm comes back a C. And by the time they're six to eight weeks in college, they're like, this had to have gone well. What the hell is wrong with me? This sucks. I'm never going to be able to adjust. Okay. Notice, so now you're in a negative situation. You get negative feelings. And then the system, the justificatory system goes haywire on it. Okay. And then that causes the feeling system to be like, oh my God, this is fucking hopeless. And so then it gets all withdrawn. And the system is like, now I'm ineffective. I can't even go to class. What the hell is wrong with me? So now the blaming system is now piling on to a shutting down system. And you get what's called a depressive disorder, where the justification system is being hijacked in a pessimistic way, creating self-blame, turning against the self, as the felt primate system is now like, I can't get anybody to take care of me, and my rider, the ego on top of my horse, hates me. So now I'm just a helpless fucking child, and so I'm doing nothing but sitting in bed. So now you get the ego at war with the experiential self. Okay, which is a central cognitive insight, the pessimistic, helpless learn. And then the system itself is getting just this iterative process. So that's an example of the different domains and systems. Uh, and by the way, our current society is totally set up in a bad way that makes this very likely to happen. Okay? So you get, and that's why we're seeing a massive increases in anxiety and depressive disorders um, for a whole host of reasons I could get into. So essentially, bottom line, what's depression? So we should describe it as a state of mental behavioral shutdown. Makes perfect sense if you understand behavioral investment theory and the way uh, organisms, animals, and primates act in the world and the way our structure is. That is what description we can then ask, what gives rise to the shutdown? What kinds of developmental environmental structures? What kinds of agent arena adaptive structures or maladaptive structures? And what is the biophysiological architecture and where is it in relationship to this? And you get depressive diseases, depressive disorders, depressive reactions. And you're like, oh, that's what depression is. Okay. And it just makes perfect sense. And my last thing I'll say is like, I'm passionate about this. You know, we talk about meaning mental health crisis. 
the depression is the number one cause in the world of disability. Okay. It's the number one cause of disability. So, and we don't, and we don't even know <laughs> what it is. We, we can look at Jordan Peterson, take his clips and be like, okay, guys, so what is it? Well, it's this complicated possible thing, blah, blah, blah. It's like, if you have the rights, it's a state of behavioral shutdown. Oh, it has reactive structures. It has maladaptive elements. It's got biophysiological elements. It makes perfect sense. It's amazing then that this number one cause of disability is so confused. And it's just an example of why the problem of psychology is so important. Well, I mean, th th that's probably why treatment but diagnosis is so difficult right that uh there are lots of different paths to behavioral shutdown there's lots of different ways in which negative affect can can increase and and desire and motivation can decrease well, like you said like you can be struck by lightning and if you're struck by lightning your affect is negative affect is going to go up right away in, in the flash of a second or you can be exposed to terrible socioeconomic political situations and the rate of change there will probably be different Maybe it'll be, there'll be uh, reciprocal dynamics, like John points out. Uh, and then there are all these different paths. Right. And you want to know, in terms of institution, you know, postmodern critique, what we did was we decided that there were natural, non-human causes to the world, and we call that medicine. And medicine then is different because we don't call it, hold you responsible. Once we diagnose you medically, that means it's operating at the living organism plane and mechanistically causing shit, and your culture person plane's not responsible, okay? So then we grant psychiatry, which is a medical discipline, diagnosing all of these things, which then means institutionally you have to decide whether this is not the person's fault at all and caused completely independently of who they are and, that, and reduces to biological breakdown or is then caused by who they are and problems in living and then is not a medical problem at all. Notice then the institutional categories preordain an inability to define what the hell the thing is because it doesn't reside in those kind of categories that we built based on the error of the Enlightenment gap where we thought, oh, there's matter and biology and then there's mind out here. There's these two totally different things. And we, there's no, you know, it's either or. And this person is not either or at all. But there you go. That's part of the history as to why you're sort of like, so the institutional postmodern institution is actually broken. It's already given the authority to define the thing by an institution that has to define the thing as a disease. <laughs> it's a preordained like that. We, we got troubles, you know? I mean, like so, anyway. just from a popular perspective, I think the way that people think about medicine is just that uh, there's a mechanism in your body that's working. It breaks. You have to fix or replace it. Like it's like a car. There's a part in your car that breaks. You got to fix or replace it. There's just no way to apply that. Uh, beyond the, the life plate. The, you can't think of mental mechanisms the same way. Absolutely. We do it with ADHD. We do it. I mean, this is the, the, the way in which our mental illness models then are applying are creating so much sickness and confusion at just an epistemic level of like what we are, who we are. And again, that's why the problem of psychology is so unbelievably important is because we, the academy hasn't given lay people the bait a proper model just for sense making it creates this division of well that's not you at all that's your adhd it's like i mean they did the, the in nonsense in relationship to those claims is just astronomical yet the institution is structured to behave that way and it's tragic yeah yeah really is because you said it, I mean, it's such an important problem and it'll continue to be likely into the and, future and that we're seeing rates of opioid use suicide uh, adolescent anxiety shooting through the roof, folks. 
um, yeah, you know, uh, this is uh, this is not going away. Uh, and the number of people that are suffering uh, because of a misalignment of how they understand themselves in the world is just uh, it just makes me want to weep. Yeah, it's brutal. OK, shifting to something a little bit more optimistic, hopefully, uh, <laughs> the 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 fifth joint point, uh, the idea of what's what's next at the. You said optimistic. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, I mean, okay, we certainly can go with optimism. Uh, you know, I, I, it depends on where you catch me, and especially if I'm talking about depression, I got semantic associative network of disaster already. already. Anyway, yeah, I'm certainly a little scared about the uh, what's going to happen, but let's talk a little bit about this joint point. So if you look at the tree of knowledge, all right, as it did within six months at least, uh, the tree of knowledge, you know, where I saw, okay, matter, uh, life comes out of matter, mind comes out of life, culture comes out of mind. Hey, what will be next? Once it dawned on me, okay, that each one of these fields, planes of existence are organized by novel information processing communication networks, okay, you don't have to be a genius to basically like, huh, are we seeing the emergence of novel information processing communication networks in the 20th? And so the 20th century now looks very much like, so mind in the, um, uh, the tree of knowledge frame is mindedness, animal mindedness. And basically you get about 700 million years ago, you get sponges and animal and, and things like, um, uh, you know, flatworms and, but they're not, they don't have centralized brains and they're not complex active systems, more or less complex active body systems comes along the Cambrian explosion. Okay. And, and, and although they're going to find more shit around this, but basically between 560 to 520 million years ago, really down into some places, you can argue almost 2 million years, you see an explosion of the animal kingdom, okay, with its complex active bodies, almost certainly because you get prey predation relation. And then that creates an arms race of sensory motor structures that are eating each other. <laughs> and then that arm race gives rise to the basic animal body plan, okay? So you have jellyfish that are like networked, but not centralized, and they're not coordinated. And then all of a sudden there's a pressure that happens and then they get centralized and you get animals with complex uh, active bodies and centralized nervous system. So I look out at the 20th century and I see the jellyfish model. Okay. We're laying down an internet. We have independent artificial intelligence structures. Okay. Computational structures. And we're getting communication networks, phones. Okay. And now the networking of that is building in more and more intensely. And it's building in a way that's an interfacing with us and the world of things, the rest of the world of things, with greater and greater uh, intimacy uh, and greater fluidity and power, okay? And that's when the, so the 21st century really is essentially the idea is that this thing at the tech level, this thing is going to again get solidified and create an, the opportunity for another complex adaptive plane of existence, the digital plane, okay? Well, this is like a nothing that's ever happened before. So we built a material culture. Tree of knowledge differentiates, defines society as four fundamental things. You're situated in a biophysical ecology. You're animal primates that are engaged in work effort, behavioral investment patterns. You then have capital C culture, and then you have technology. Okay. Historically, technology was not information interfacing with language or anything else, and, but now it is. That's what 20th century did. And then now it's in networking everything else together. So what this is doing is it's giving us both a great hope and a great terror, okay? The great hope is, oh, my God, the power of this, okay, 
and the opportunities for this, and then the great terror is like, oh my God, the power and the chaos. <laughs> okay. Uh, the chaos means all the old institutions are situated in a kind of information processing communication network that is, assumes all of these kinds of things that are now not valid anymore because you can operate in a totally different dimension. Okay. Uh, of course, it also affords all sorts of different kinds of powers. Oh my God, I can neural link myself and in information interface with the internet and have that kind of speed in my understanding. Um, you can be like, oh my God, that's great. And like, oh my God, that's horrible. <laughs> okay. So to me, the fifth joint point uh, at its most concrete level is basically, okay, the digital is happening. And everything that tells us that's going to wobble, cause all sorts of things to wobble, okay? We got to evolve through it. And then the question is how, all right? Now, if everything in the world was going fine, this would be a big challenge, but we'd be, I wouldn't be super freaked out about it. But you may not have may have noticed that not everything in the world is going fine across all sorts of different uh, institutional, ecological structures, mental health structures, meaning-making structures, et cetera. So we got this digital evolution as the emergence of modernity and the uh, you know Anthropocene now is you know endangering slash killing the planet, depending on what the arc of time you're looking at and what who you're reading. And you have all of this globalization network and you have all this flux in what people believe and really the breakdown in belief structures into a chaotic fragmented pluralism uh, on economic generator systems that need to keep growing but can't keep growing in relationship to the demand they put on everything. You get a really, really dangerous intersection. Okay. Um, and so that's what makes me scared. If I go back to the depression, let's go up and like, oh, God, we could get global civilization collapse. Okay. The, the fifth joint point from you talk is really a call. And what it says is we're both in danger and there's a great opportunity here. Okay. Uh, and what the, what the fifth joint point says is from a you talk, this is very you talk centric. Okay. But, uh, and I want to know, I want to be clear. There are a lot of different kinds of pieces that could be woven in. But if I stay within you talk, it says, Hey, if we're going to make it through the thread of the needle of the fifth joint point, which is come through the cone and have it organized and have it organized in a way that maintains the sustainability and coherence and integrity as best as possible of the entire stack across the various dimensions of life, the ecology of the planet, mental animals, which we've already brutalized, uh, but could do better on, and the rest of human population, we better have it cohere, the emergence of the digital, and get sustainability with all of this high-stacked vulnerability. How the fuck are we going to do that? Okay. Well, Utah comes along and says, actually, we it, affor it affords us an optimistic statement by saying, well, one of the reasons that we're in so much confusion is because our knowledge systems are broken. Okay. I mean, we're flying blind coherently. So we are essentially clueless in our capacity to understand the world and our place in it, meaning there's no operating system that is coherent. Okay. And that can explain why there's so much confusion, at least in part, and why we're so in such a dangerous plot. And then, of course, Utah comes along and is like, well, actually, it's the first real clued in coherent system. It's not the end, it's the beginning of being clued in. Okay. And if you can get then a global knowledge system that is in line with science, but also orients the psyche and then collective wisdom, okay, and does so in a coherent, integrated play, we can pull the wisdom from the various traditions now and create a tapestry of various insights that allow a coherent, meaningful system that manages mental 
growth effectively and our health effectively, and then does so in a way that can possibly guide us to interface with the planet, with ourselves and each other, and with the emerging digital, so that we're oriented toward wisdom and grounded in knowledge that's going to be cumulative. And if we can do that, then you have an actually operative selective function. Each one of the dimensions has a selective function like justification uh, on the symbol, okay, justification systems process. So you get you talk, it's grandiose or whatever, but you talk then becomes what I call the digital identity solution, okay, especially through the coin and the I, what I call the I quad correction, which is like our psyche science wisdom function can get rotated and can get correctly placed in the cosmos so we understand our cosmic coordinates knowledge-wise, and we understand our valued states of being future-wise. And if everybody could upgrade to having right relation to is and ought, we might actually be able to create what uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger and others call the third attractor, okay? He argues that actually, if we look, he's a global civilization collapse risk guy, and he's like, oh my God, we're either going to blow everything up chaotically, or as that happens, we're going to create a 1984 totalitarian structure. These are the two dystopian attractors that are obvious. We need a third attractor. Utah comes along and says, well, a key point about the third attractor is our knowledge systems. It diagnoses why our knowledge systems have been so broken. So that's one thing that other systems don't do. And then it's from that diagnosis that it clarifies the proper correction and then gives rise to a coherent system so that we go from being clueless to having a clue. It, it, it's so tough because, I mean, this is the kind of solution that we need, the proposal that we need when developing AGI systems. But you're right. I mean, the state of the world seems really frightful. Like, AGI systems are controlled. If anyone's going to win that race, it's going to be one of the major corporations. I think that's there, – there's no way around that. Totally. Right. And we and the people that are then raised, I mean, all, all due respect, uh, but the Elon Musk and, and uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's and whatever – they're raised in a particular structure, okay, and they're going to have a and they're going to be actually architecturally built in a particular way. We need a different kind of philosophical, scientific, humanistic perspective that's going to inform the structures of growth across time in ways that actually have deep meta values. And that's one of the nice things about being a clinical psychologist who's philosophically informed. Of like, no, I, I yeah, no, I got a frame on this. <laughs> I mean, so, honestly, I'd even put it more stronger than that. That like the personality of the people in at the behest of this is important, but at the end of the day, I think what's more important is just the economic constraints that act on them. Well, that, that that's one of the great dis- real challenges is that all as as Daniel Schmachtenberger talked about the incentive generative functions are in play right now uh, that are the momentum and the infrastructure, and this is you know this is really sad and scary. So for me, I I mean I grow up you're giving a you know place it in one context about why this is so difficult. You know, I'm I'm embedded in the institution of psychology, okay? I mean, I, I get, you know, my doctoral training and my advisor's a good person. He's well, pretty well networked. I go work with Beck. I get connected with people. I do all this. Other, but the message that I bring to bear to the institution is not something the institution's interested in, okay? And as a function of that, nobody really cares. I got all, for 25 years, I've had one-on-one wonderful conversations. But the collective institution cannot stop what it's doing <laughs> and then start to upgrade based on this, based on a set of ideas, because the institution incentives are to get grants. I mean, when I was at the university of Pennsylvania, just give an idea of institutional incentives, I had to put the tree of knowledge and the theoretical unification publication, which is in review of general psychology at the back of my Vita, 
because it wasn't an empirical public, it wasn't data-based, okay? And I, and I did, yet, yet when I had done surveys on what practitioners thought of borderline personality disorder, oh, that was right in the front because that had numbers in it, okay? Because we're an empirical enterprise. And you're just sort of, in retrospect, so now you look at corporations and you're like, oh my God, we're, you know, our obligation is to get growth for our shareholders and our employees. And that's, that's what we do. And anything that pulls out of that then threatens the entire justificatory narrative. And if you're paid to think that way and the entire institutions, the, the momentum and inertia is scary as fuck. There's no doubt about it. And, and how are we going to actually undo that and create other generative mechanisms? I love Daniel Schmackenberg's thought on this. And, and I'm ignorant about the actual, I'm a theorist, you know, I just dove deep into abstraction, pulled out uh, my rabbit's hole to write analytics and logos. And we'll have to figure out how people market this, how people that get actually invested in it and how to actually use it as agents of change. I'm going to need serious help on that. That's not my forte. But anyway, so, you know, we'll see, uh, you know, my, my mission, uh, you know, I just finished my book and my, my mission is to try to Help make you talk accessible. Uh, the not, nice thing about you talk, we talk about being uh, be able to shut down their other pieces. There are a huge bunch of, you know, straightforward applications that can help people improve uh, pretty much right off the, uh, dust it off and, and, you know, like this thing called Calm MO and other kinds of things. So my hope is to sort of like help people see its utility, get a, see, a bunch of seers together who've got various aspects and start to stitch our visions together and hopefully figure out a way to consolidate that into a message uh, that can be clear enough in time uh, for enough people to wake up and really start the, the hard work of shifting the institutional inertia into something else. That's what, what else can we do? So. <laughs>